So we'll read this morning from James 4, verses 4 to 10, and it's on page 1218 in your Bibles. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that we jealously long for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. There's an old man who lived alone. His only son was in prison, and the old man wrote his son a letter. said, Dear son, I'm feeling pretty bad. Looks like I won't be able to plant my potatoes this year. Just getting too old to be digging up the garden plot. But if you were here, all my troubles would be over. I know you'd dig the plot for me if you weren't in prison. Love, Dad. And uh, he received a letter back from his son. For heaven's sake, Dad, don't dig up the plot. That's where I buried the guns. And at 4am the next morning, a dozen cops showed up and stack of those dogs with particularly nosy noses and they dug up the garden and the old man wrote back to his son said the cops had come they didn't find any guns and what should he do next and his son said plant the potatoes dad it's the best i could do for you from in here it's not a true story it's not even a particularly good story but it is a story about digging and uh for the last um five weeks since christmas we've been thinking about what it would mean to be people who don't kind of settle for the surface but really dig more deeply daily into God's grace. Uh, There's no better thing to dig for. We're not digging for potatoes. We're digging for gold, the, the best gold, the grace of God, that great undeserved kindness of God. Uh, how do we do this? Well, we've seen uh, since the beginning of January, it's all the same old answers, actually. Um, reading the word, praying, uh, being at church, being humble. And uh, it's been very important, though, to realize that these aren't the same old answers because um, people just keep saying them and have been saying them for 2,000 years, but that they have a real root, a real foundation. And the reason these things are so incredibly important in both recognizing and receiving God's grace each day uh, is because they really are the things that God has built to allow us to dig more deeply into his goodness. It is a daily grace that God should speak to us in his word. Nothing ordinary about that, as ordinary as a quiet time may feel. It is a daily grace that we should be able to pray daily. Uh, that is an astonishing thing for which Jesus died. Um, it is a daily grace uh, that we can embrace our weakness and actually gain God's strength. And it is a, well, not daily, but at least weekly grace, maybe twice weekly, that we can take each other 
as the gift of God and by word and deed um, share God's goodness with one another. These really tame, predictable virtues and habits of the Christian life are so for a reason. And we've been saying this year, if uh, for any reason you've fallen off the perch on any of those, you've stopped reading your Bible, uh, your prayers have become a bit irregular, your attendance at church is, re- is irregular, or you're showing up but not with heart for the brothers and sisters, then now's the time to sort it out. Let's not begin the year on false footing. It's been wonderful to recognise that God's grace, you know, is not all exhausted on the cross, though that was boundless. But just overflows again and again each day in a whole variety of ways. God's just ongoing goodness to us uh, who are his people, let alone to the world who ignore him. Today we're going to finish the series before we open another series next week looking at the generosity of God. By, with a bit of a warning actually, we began five weeks ago talking about humility. Uh, I'm going to end by warning about pride. You began humility, you kind of covered that. You said yes to humility, Jim. Well, let's just be clear that we say no to pride. And uh, James 4 is a passage that helps us do that. Uh, I was just really struck um, when we uh, sung that song about the lion and the lamb and by um, Amy's incredibly lifelike animal impression. Uh, and uh, that our God really is the lion and a lamb and in fact that's kind of the structure of this passage uh, but with one extra shock and that is that God doesn't just our lion doesn't just roar sometimes he roars at us James 4 let's turn back to verse 1 what causes fights and quarrels among you don't they come from your desires that battle within you you desire but do not have so you kill you covet but you cannot get what you want so you quarrel and fight You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Uh, We'll pause there. Uh, I'm sure when Hank began that reading, kind of, um, you know, it's just like every week, someone opens the Bible, reads the first reading, and then the first words you heard were, you adulterous people. If you didn't sit up in your seat at that point or look for a spot to hide, you weren't listening. It's quite an address, isn't it? We have to ask the question, who is he addressing? Uh, The first thing to say is he wasn't addressing adulterers. Well, kind of. Um, That is, if you read all of James, you'll find that there is no mention in James of any actual unfaithfulness between men and women in a marriage covenant. Um, that is, when James was writing, and he was writing to a general audience of Jewish Christians all around the Middle East, uh, the Mediterranean, we believe, we think, from what we know, uh, the kind of idea of marital unfaithfulness was not kind of uppermost in his mind. In fact, he, he mentions a whole bunch of other problems in this letter that he expects to find among Christians, like favouring the rich over the poor, not looking after widows and orphans, reading the Bible and not taking it to heart, a whole lot of stuff, very practical stuff but he doesn't actually say, and look after your marriages. So why talk about adultery? And the answer can in part um, be found in the people he's addressing. So it's you metaphorically adulterous people. Who's he talking to? Well, the people he's talking to are not the people out there. 
So it's very easy to hear a kind of Bible writer, a kind of prophetic voice say, you adulterous people, don't you know friendship with the world means enmity with God? And immediately place yourself as friends with God on the side of God and away from the world. That's what it, it pretty largely is to be a Christian. But it's very important in reading this passage to recognise that the people he addresses are not unbelieving pagans, to use a pejorative term, but an accurate one, but believing Christians. And that's quite shocking. Uh, I know this because these are the people who he describes as fighting and quarrelling to get what they want in the verses above and pleasure-driven. Again, that sounds like, gee, really, is that the Christians? Maybe he's really talking, maybe he's critiquing culture at large. But if, I, if I'm confused about this, it becomes very clear in verse 5, where he says, Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he caused to dwell in us? He is speaking to people who possess the spirit of God. He's speaking to the people of God. And he says, you adulterous people. This is deeply shocking. It actually reminds me a lot of Old Testament prophets. And if you know the book of James, you'll know it sounds a lot like Old Testament prophecy. It sounds not a little bit like the prophet Amos, uh, who decried the unfaithfulness of God's people and began his book by saying, the Lord roars. The Lord roars from Zion. And what happens in the book of Amos is God's people look up and a lion roars at them. You can see their hair kind of stream back on their head and fear kind of settle in their eyes because God has turned against them. He is a lion and he does roar. And yes, he's the lion that wins the victory for us. But don't think for a moment he won't roar at you. How do I know this? Well, it's summed up for us in verse 6, isn't it? It says, God opposes the proud. There's a little summary of everything that's gone before, actually. It's the description of the Christians here again. It's not a word for the proud out there. It's the word for the proud in here. It says, this person of God who kind of, fights, quarrels, bitches, moans, whatever, because they can't get what they want. Who secretly worships their own pleasure and comfort above other things and therefore will push others out of the way or leave them aside to get what they want. This person, this heart, is an adulterous heart. This person has become, though a friend of God, an enemy of God. And God is grieved and, and is torn that the spirit he placed in us is so far from the one whom he placed his spirit in. That's a compelling picture, isn't it? Just a horrifying picture. And so it says, God opposes the proud. The lion will roar. Uh, this is the time, of course, for knowing a bit more about God. That's the first half of the passage. describes the shallowness of human pride and the depth of God's reaction to it. 
let's just kind of stop and think a bit about God for a moment. I don't want to assume that that was automatically obvious to you or you um, agree with everything I'm saying. After all, my first bit of knowledge of God was learnt in Sunday school, singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I don't remember the song that says, occasionally God roars at me, for the Bible tells me so. I think it would be a perfectly reasonable song. I just don't know. Rowan, you're a Sunday school teacher. Give it a crack, all right? He's, <laughs> he's making notes. Right? I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, is it true? Uh, is it true? Uh, when I turned 32, I went away to a conference, as ministers do. We only do it one day a week, and when we're not working, we're on conferences. That's not true. Um, and uh, the guy leading it said, I'd love you in this session now just to... Um, turn to the Psalms and read the Psalm that matches the year of your age. Uh, the Psalm of 32, so you know this was story comes from a while ago. And I thought, that's such a cheesy way to read the Bible. What a cheesy way to read the Bible. Who reads the Bible like that? Yeah. I'd like you to, um, do the, you know, get the Fibonacci sequence out and read all those Psalms. I mean, it's a ridiculous way to read the Bible. So I was feeling contemptuous at this point. And I laid open Psalm 32. And it said, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I read, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For, your, for day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And um, it was the middle of summer. And immediately my strength was sapped. And I, uh, I called to mind immediately how out of sorts I was with God at that point. And I remember thinking, gosh, it really is like a heavy hand that's placed on me. And I remember being shocked at reading, oh my goodness, for day and night your hand was heavy on me. But I think for the first time ever I thought, the question, that feeling of kind of fatigue and disenchantment and, and discouragement that might not be from because the world's crappy, you know, and it's just a hard season, but actually might be the Lord laying something upon me. That, that kind of feeling of being beset by opposition could actually be the Lord's opposition. I thought, is this really true? Oh, I'll tell you what happened next in a minute. But you want to check this, right? Because remember, the best theology you have is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. So this idea that Jesus loves me, that God might yet oppose me, sounds, very, sounds like a very weird footnote, don't you think? So you want to check it a bit further, right? So I've taken your James 4, you can see it there. I've taken your Psalm 32, you can see it there, right? A, a good way to check your theology is to check with Jesus too. I thought, what about Jesus? And I remembered, in, I remembered um, a moment that Jesus has with uh, Peter. Remember Peter? His name was Simon, he's just a fisherman. He realises Jesus is the Christ and God says, you're going to be Peter, you're a rock. You're the rock on which I'm going to build my church. So um, Peter is in many ways like our disciple. He just pops up all the way through the gospel as like really like us. <laughs> And um, we hear more about him than any other disciple. He's kind of the disciple of disciples. And I remember the moment when Jesus said he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. 
and Peter rebuked him because he thought that way was way too humble for Jesus. And you know what he was saying was, that's way too humble for me. <laughs> and I don't know if you remember what Jesus said to him. Do you remember? Let's take the first bit. He said, get behind me. Get behind me. I would never really thought of that phrase. Jesus was literally on the way to Jerusalem. And um, he goes, you are now in my path. You need to get out of the way. Uh, if you don't get out of the way, <laughs> I'll be walking through you, Peter. And then he spoke to his friend and named him. Do you remember what his name was? Satan. Uh, literally, my opponent, my adversary. is his friend this is his friend and his enemy isn't that a stark moment and uh, it's just worth noting the gravity of that moment on the road to Jerusalem among a friend and a disciple someone whom he had called as a shepherd you know as that lamb like shepherd and yet uh, Peter had become an opponent of the Lord and the Lord would not stand for it I don't know if that's justification enough for you to add a footnote to Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so saying Jesus loves me and he loves me enough that he'll call on his father occasionally to roar at me um, because it is a terrible thing it is a terrible thing to spend life digging into the shallow grave that is pride that's what we learned, that everything description about people's commitment to pleasure and their quarrelling and their self-centeredness is the manifestation of a deep, well, of a very shallow pride. And God opposes it. It doesn't mean, by the way, he just doesn't like pride, like he's standing in a corner and going, yeah, that's a concept I keep my distance from. No, he, it's personal. He opposes the proud, the person of pride. And I look back and wonder at the times in my life when I've been committed to my own pride and think of all the ways in which God might have lovingly and sternly prevented my path. What a kindness. Uh, well, that's one kindness, but there's much more. And verse 6 makes it clear where this whole passage flips it in the second half. It says, God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. And that's introduced by that wonderful phrase at the beginning of the verse, but he gives us more grace. After telling us we're adulterous and that we're fools for fighting and that we've got wrong motives in our prayers and that we've become enemies of God and that God's spirit is in us, but it's like a terribly betrayed relationship. What, what should he say next? I'll tell you what he says, verse six, it says in verse 6. He says, but he gives us more grace. More grace astonishing wouldn't you want to dig into that we're not digging for potatoes this is gold wouldn't you want to dig into that and we're told how you do and the rest of the, the rest of the passage takes this up submit yourselves then to God resist the devil he'll flee from you but come near to God and he will come near to you wash your hands you sinners purify your hearts you double minded Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So it's a mark of kind of believers that they um, can be humble. I don't know where you get that. We, we say a confession in church fairly regularly, uh, maybe more regularly after Grant's encouragement a couple of weeks ago that I heard very clearly. But when we say the confession in church, I think a lot of the time we're sort of corporately going, yes, Lord, we're sinners, you know that, and we're coming. And you might occasionally find you go, oh, yes, Lord, I hate what I was like on Thursday. But I think a lot of the time we're kind of operating at a fairly surface level. And I assume there are moments for you, you know, um, in the back room of your house or in the privacy of your bedroom or, you know, on, sitting in a car at North Maroubra or walking around the headland where you are just a desolated person, um, where you feel broken. Uh, those are magic places. For anyone else, they're just a few steps away from, you know, remedy at the pub or over the cliff. But for the Christian, those are really blessed moments because the Christian can really take humbling because the God who opposes us is the same God who gives us more grace and will lift us up. Just so people often say to me, Jim, you're so hard on yourself. I go, man, I'm not hard on myself. I, I belong to a God who is, has me in his arms. I'm not in danger here. I'm not digging myself a hole, I'm digging myself out of a hole. Or rather, I'm being lifted out of a hole. This is the God whom we have. To be able to wash, not just hands, which is hard enough to do for some kids, but to hearts. Look at these verbs, to grieve and mourn and wail. To not protect yourself when you're under attack. You know, when you've failed and you want to justify yourself. Gosh, I do that all the time. But to just sit in the grief of that, in the mourning of that, to wail a bit, to decide there might not be a few days laughter, but a few days gloom. To humble yourself before the Lord in the sure knowledge that he will lift you up is a blessed thing. It's the experience of grace. I don't know what that's like for you. I don't know where it happens. I'm pretty sure it doesn't happen often in church, though occasionally I see a tear roll down one of our cheeks. Not one. It's not the same person every time, don't worry. And I love to see that. But I'll tell you when it happened for me when I was 32 and on that conference. And I read that psalm that I thought was cheesy and found it stripped me bare and that my strength was sapped and God's hand was heavy on me and my bones hurt. They really just, it felt like my bones hurt and groaned all day long. And in that cheesy moment, I was able to acknowledge my sin, verse 5, and not cover up my iniquity. I confessed my transgressions to the Lord and he forgave the guilt of my sin. And I remember uh, just an experience of such lightning. As it is, it's as if someone gave me a bone marrow transplant. My, my bones kind of sat up in my, in my person. My heart lifted. My head was raised high. And I rejoined the conference 
we pray. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you, the psalmist says, while you may be found, for surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach you, for you are my hiding place. You'll protect me from trouble and surround me with strong songs of deliverance. He did. He did. It ends, rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. And I was. I was. You're so, so loved. God is so, so serious. And so, so good. And Jesus has made this so, so clear to us. Let's pray. Father, we belong to a culture absolutely committed to comfort, pleasure, ease, self-protection, self-promotion. It could only be a work of your spirit if we ever get laid low in anything other than despair. To be laid low in repentance and humility will be your work, Father. And on that day, in that moment, we pray that none of us would refuse it. We pray that we would recognise your mighty roar, your heavy hand, your loving kindness. We pray that you would humble us. And Lord, we commit to grieve and to mourn and to wail, to pray, to sob, to rack our minds, to stop our words, to bear our heart, to seek again your great love for us. For you are not only the lion who will roar at our folly, but the lamb who has slain that we might be clean. Oh Lord, you're so good. We give you praise.